The latest episode of the Next 5 podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of the Next 5 wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. The FT. Welcome to this special edition of World Weekly. I'm Lindsay Whip, Global Economy News Editor. This week, the Financial Times is running a series of articles investigating China's growing debt burden. Between 2008 and today, total debt has shot up from 130% of economic output to 200% today. Joining me to discuss China's addiction to debt, the difficult choices it faces, and to answer some FT readers' questions is Simon Rabinovich, China correspondent and author of the series. So, Simon, how did China end up with such a large amount of debt, and why has corporate debt in particular swelled to the extent that it has? The the real starting point for China was 2008 with the global financial crisis. Before then, China had relied very little on credit to power its own growth, But with demand from the rest of the world falling away, the government turned to a massive stimulus package in late 2008, and that was funded by and large by debt. Although there's been a lot of attention about how that led to a big jump in government debt, in fact, it was Chinese corporations that were the biggest borrowers. And so we saw the Chinese corporate debt load as a percentage of GDP jump from roughly 80% to 130% over the past five years, which is really a phenomenally fast increase. How are the companies coping with their credit burdens now? Are we seeing an increase in non-performing loans, for example? Well, up until now, the formal amount of non-performing loans in the banking sector has remained extremely low. It's only about 1% of overall loans. In the past year, we've begun to have many more instances of individual corporations uh, running into difficulties Uh, whether it's uh, big solar panel producers like LDK and Suntech uh, or shipbuilders like Rongsheng, there have been some big cases of companies that have been unable to repay their loans. There's a lot of suspicion as well that there are many corporations that are facing difficulty, but either through issuing bonds or getting loan rollovers, they've been able to delay the moment of reckoning with the banks. So the the 1% non-performing loan ratio is actually quite a serious understatement of how severe the problem is. If you look at the pricing of Chinese bank shares in the Hong Kong market, the market assumption is that the real bad loan ratio is closer to about 6%. So investors do expect that there will be a lot worse news to come. If we just take it internationally, a lot of our readers are quite keen to get an understanding of how China's debt issues relate to, say, um, the US or Japan has been brought up a lot as a comparison. What's the best way to compare the situation in China internationally? The most relevant comparison for China is not Japan or the United States, because these are very developed economies, but is other emerging markets. Looked at on that basis, the increase in debt in China is alarming. With overall debt, that's government, corporate and household, 
at 200% of GDP. That's almost twice as high as other major emerging markets, including India and Russia and Brazil, that the other BRIC economies. And experience of other emerging markets as well is that the extent of the increase in China's debt to GDP over the past five years is similar to what was seen in Southeast Asian economies before the Asian financial crisis in the 1990s, in Japan in the 1980s before its housing bubble burst. So the increase in debt as well as the overall debt load are both very alarming. So this sense of alarm, do you feel or hear that among executives or government officials that you speak to? Certainly on the record, we're not hearing expressions of alarm from government officials, but there are expressions of concern And they have taken a whole series of measures in recent years to try to slow the accumulation of debt. These measures, by and large, have not been successful because although they've stopped the increase of debt through the front door, if you will, through the banking sector, they've allowed it to continue through the back door, through the shadow banking system, realizing that if they were to completely cut off the debt, the economy would potentially face a precipitously slow decline. So debt has continued to accumulate. What I and others are now hearing when we travel around the country and meet with corporate executives and meet with investors is much more pessimism than just a few years ago. After the financial crisis, when China had its massive stimulus, it really looked like China was going to be surpassing the U.S. economy and that there was nowhere to go but up. And the optimism at that time was infectious. But really, just in the past year or so, a much more pessimistic streak has emerged, and it's a very palpable feeling these days. Lots of companies had rushed to expand when the stimulus package was unveiled. And with the economy now slowing, although it's still in very reasonable shape, you know, growing about 7.5% a year, the fact is companies from the steel sector to the auto sector, property companies, retail companies, had invested on the assumption that growth would remain about 10% a year. So even just slowing to 7.5% has been a rude awakening, uh, and lots of the capacity that was built up is emerging to be excess capacity. It's a new reality for companies to face, and what they've begun to do is a process of deleveraging But that's very difficult and it's proceeding quite slowly at the moment. I just want to move on to some um, questions from our readers. Um, uh, Writing under the pseudonym of Wenren, this person asks what could possibly be a catalyst for a similar crisis in China as, say, for the Asian financial crisis in 97 or the global financial crisis in 2008. What sort of scenarios are there for China? Well, I'd be very cautious about predicting a crisis in China because China actually has one big difference when you look at it compared to uh, especially the other Asian economies that have had crises over the past 15 years. And that is that China depends to a very, very limited extent on foreign credit. So unlike South Korea, Thailand, Malaysia in the 1990s, China relies very little on foreign credit. It's almost entirely domestically held. So you wouldn't have the same foreign trigger for a crisis. In fact, China has, to a great extent, a capacity to basically paper over the problem. I think that the better comparison for China is actually Japan, where a massive amount of debt was built up in the 1980s. In the 1990s, it wasn't an acute crisis, so much as a hollowing out of the economy, a hollowing out of corporations. China's in a similar position where it doesn't necessarily need to recognize all of the bad debts 
that has built up. So it can avoid an acute crisis. Now, that's not necessarily a good thing. In fact, it's probably a bad thing for the long-term development of the economy. If there are bad debts in the system, it's important that the government and the companies and the banks try to recognize them and address them in as transparent and direct a manner as possible. If they do decide to go the Japan way of just rolling things over and avoiding recognition, then the great expectations for Chinese growth over the coming decades might end up being disappointed. Related to that, um, just to sort of return to the shadow banking sector, writing under the pseudonym Veblen, there's a question about figures on corporate and household debt in some of the charts that we used. And this person brings up the millions of Chinese small businesses relying on off-the-books debt for startups and operating funds in downturns and the use of circles of family and friends for credit. Is this sort of financing being included in the figures that we get from the IMF, for example? Right. That's a good question. And the discussion of shadow banking in China is something that's been around for a long time. And, and traditionally, it was that kind of informal financing that people were thinking of when they were talking about shadow banking in China. And those numbers are not actually included in the estimates that we um, have presented in this series for the simple reason that there aren't very reliable numbers for that kind of truly informal financing. The best estimates you see out there are that such financing is anywhere from 2 to 10% of GDP. So it's actually not as big as the other forms of non-bank financing. It is a serious issue, but it's not such an economy-wide issue. It's more concentrated in specific areas. The one area that always comes to mind when you talk about this is the city of Wenzhou, which is about three or four hours away from Shanghai. Uh, And Wenzhou is a city where informal financing was particularly popular over the past decade. And they've already had a crisis there. It really began two years ago. And the impact on on the local economy has been quite severe. So it's absolutely true that Informal financing is a serious issue in certain parts of the economy, in certain areas. And even if the official data is not picking up on it, there is the potential for it to have a seriously negative impact uh, during a downturn. And a final question from another reader under the name of Jolson. How will the growing debt affect the internationalization of the Chinese renminbi? The debt in China, given that it's uh, almost entirely domestically held, doesn't have a direct impact on the internationalization of the RMB. The important point, of course, is that the sustained rapid development and stable development of the Chinese economy is an essential prerequisite for the internationalization of the RMB. So if China does disappoint or if China does have serious financial difficulties, that, of course, would be a big negative for the RMB as it continues to march abroad. One possibility, though, is that given that China to date has relied so little on foreign markets for financing, the need for more debt to sustain China's growth could well push the government to accelerate the opening of its capital account and to accelerate the process by which its companies try to tap international markets. So we could actually see more moves, in fact, in the coming years for China to try to tap external financing. Okay, and if I can just ask one last question. We're expecting the Chinese government to come out with some more details on the exact nature of debt in the coming months. What are you expecting from that, Simon? Well, it's very interesting that the government has has decided to conduct another um, you know, across-the-board audit 
of government debt because they just conducted a very big one in 2010, a partial one earlier this year, and now they decide to do another one. And I think that's an indication of the government's recognition that rising indebtedness is a serious problem. And it is something that, to begin with, they have to have some transparency about really how big is uh, the debt throughout China. Um, So I think we'll see that the new audit will produce a figure that was substantially bigger than the last one, which concluded that local governments had about 20 to 25% debt-to-GDP ratio overall. And I think it's consistent with moves that we've seen in recent months with the government trying to slow the accumulation of debt, uh, including moves which have led to uh, slightly higher financing costs. In the short term, this kind of thing could well be painful. It should lead to slightly slower growth. But it's certainly important that the Chinese government succeed in slowing the rise in debt. That is essential for the economy's long-term sustainable development. So I think it's actually quite heartening that the government is doing this. And uh, we'll have to see whether or not they're actually able to carry through with their commitment to control the financial risks which they are now identifying. Simon Rabinovich in Shanghai, thank you. To read all of Simon's reporting in this series, go to ft.com forward slash debt dragon. The regular edition of the podcast will be out later this week. Until then, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. The latest episode of The Next Five Podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Brian, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.